we've prepared to give. Thank you, Father, for the word pictures you've given us of our Savior who had to walk in faith as we did while he lived here among us. Thank you that we can see him as both the Son of Man dependent on cooperation from others to supply what he needed. And for the photos we see as the Son of God conquering death Lord, transform us today as we bring our gifts to honor you and to strengthen the work in this conference of which we are a part. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
This morning, your scripture reading is a responsive reading, and uh, I will read all, and you will join me in the bold print. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And when then says unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it felt not for it was founded upon rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man taketh heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man work, if any man's works abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, he shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Let's approach our Creator. If you're able, please kneel with me as we pray. God, our creator. You created this world, you created the entire universe, 
and it's by your laws that the planets move in an orderly way. It's by your power that all living things breathe and function. You're majestic, you are sovereign, and in your presence, the angels cover their faces. You see us and you know us and you know well that we have not obeyed your laws, sometimes unknowingly and sometimes willingly, because your laws are sometimes contrary to what we want. We come here in our Sabbath best. We say nice things, but in your presence, we are wretched, we're miserable, we're poor, we're blind, and we're naked. You know every thought and every motive. How dare we approach your throne, except because of your eternal, unfailing love for your creation. Jesus came here to live as a human, to perfectly obey your laws, your law of love, and he never failed his mission. He is our advocate, and through his merits, we come to you. We ask that you purge us of our sins, wash us, create a clean heart in us, renew us, and uphold us by your free spirit. Give us the desire to teach others about you and your plan to save us and give us eternal life with you. We praise you for your constancy in giving us blessings. Every day, the beauty of nature, the joy of relationships, our food, rest, and safety. And we're well aware that many do not have those advantages as we do today. But you've promised to walk through us, through the flood, through the fire, and through any difficulty that Satan sing seeks to bring to your children. Thank you for those promises. You are our, the Lord, our healer, and there are many among us that need healing today. You're the Lord of peace. Please grant peace to those who are experiencing conflict. You're the way, the truth, and the life. Please send your spirit to tell us, this is the way, walk in it. Bless Pastor Kelly as he shares what you have put on his heart today. Bless the programs of this church that seek to prepare us and others to know you. May it not be for our glory, but for yours. And we will praise you now and forevermore in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.
Jesus paid it all, all to him I own. Sin have left a crimson stain, he washed the white as snow. Que pagaremos amor tan inmenso que diste tu vida por el pecador en cambio recibes la ofrenda humilde la ofrenda humilde, Señor Jesucristo, de mi corazón. La ofrenda humilde, Señor Jesucristo, de mi corazón. Y cuando la noche extiende su manto, mis ojos en llanto en ti fijaré, alzando mis ojos veré las estrellas, yo sé que tras ellas cual Padre amoroso tú velas por mí. Yo sé que tras ellas, cual Padre amoroso, tú velas por mí. No puedo pagarte con oro ni plata el gran sacrificio que hiciste por mí. No tengo que darte por tanto amarme. Recibe este canto mezclado con llanto y mi corazón. Recibe este canto mezclado con llanto y mi corazón. Jesus paid it all, all to him I own. Sin have left a crimson stain, he washed the white as snow. Thank you, Brother Ariel, for reminding us of our great status as children of God and our great indebtedness to his great love. We are beginning a week of prayer. I want to invite you all to join us. The next eight days are some of the most important things that I've ever shared from any pulpit at any time, anywhere. 
and they have to do with your ability to discern. I'm going to talk about it, obviously, this morning. We'll be at 5 o'clock this evening. We'll be here for an hour. Those that are able to come, when you're not able to come, I encourage you to tune in. What we're going to look at will have to do with your ability to recognize truth from error, be honest with yourself, and have assurance for what's coming. Uh, before we pray and get going, I want to reflect on the last weekend. If we could have the slides up from our last Sabbath Vespers. We had a um, concert here that was a fundraising concert, and uh, we were so blessed, those that could be here, very excellent attendance, uh, a lot of people watching online. And as a result of that concert, we raised $43,000 for the Ukraine. Can you say amen? amen? It was a combined effort for sure between those that were present and those that were online. And uh, our online church, as well as our church in presence here, is working together to do a good work. And I want to show you where that money is going to be going. Uh, we're going to be sending some for the, we'll be covering with a little bit to spare. You know, they wanted $300 a month for the missionary family. We're going to send them a little bit more. Going to send some money for Bibles for Ukraine. Pastor Paul, who is, it's not his actual name, but we've had some interaction with him, very effective and very committed. We're going to send him some extra work. Uh, there is a uh, family there of a retired Adventist pastor that we're going to give a little support to. Going to send a decent amount of money over for generators, you know, electricity to charge their cell phones and do some basic things. And then we have uh, Sister Ina, who has overseen many shelters and many people with many meals and blankets. We're sending her a substantive amount. We're going to make sure the children especially are uh, provided for in some of these zones with their unique needs. And then there is the retreat center, the Harmony Refugee Center. We'll be sending them some money. And then the cars that uh, were requested, we're going to cover 90% of what they asked for. Uh, we feel like that ongoing partnership is important, um, that faith journey, etc. So it was a Wonderful evening. I'm very thankful to the Spirit of God and the presence of God in the singers and the singers themselves who put the time and energy into making it a very well done and very well prepared for concert. So praise the Lord and we will go forward anticipating that much good will become as a work of that evening. Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. We want to be living sacrifices. Uh, the world is working hard to separate us from you, but nothing can take us out of your hand. So I'm praying, Lord, may we have the wisdom of serpents and the innocency of doves. And bless us now as we go forward into the opening of the word. May our hearts also be open to the impress of the Spirit as he teaches in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've heard of the... Uh, revival that's, that began on the Asbury campus uh, recently, if those slides could come up. Uh, some are questioning its legitimacy, whether it is or isn't, but we do know this, the Christian world and the secular world has noticed uh, all kinds of news agencies when a Christian revival goes viral. Now, we could hope that it is genuine, and we don't need to think that it is not, but we do understand that there is the potential that it could be good and it could be somehow substitutionary of that which is real. Um, we don't know. I haven't had a time to look at it yet. 
And I hope that uh, over time it will become evident one way or the other. But we do know this. We do know that the great controversy has an entire chapter committed to this subject entitled Modern Revivals. Now, the devil is the master of deception. Let's just make sure we keep that on the front burner. Now, we don't need to go around in fear and foreboding and anxiety and distress. We don't have to be worrying about our salvation if our lives are hidden in Christ. We don't have to worry about being deceived either, but we do need to test all things and prove that which is good. And just because it's promoted in the name of Christianity does not make it so. So let's actually hope and pray that this revival is of a genuine nature and that we ourselves are recipients of the Holy Spirit in a large outpouring. And let us, let us come to the, the experience of where we are right now knowing this. If it's a genuine revival, then may we be recipients of the Holy Spirit and of, of a deepening life in Christ. If somehow it should turn out not to be, let us understand that before there is true revival, there will be false revival. The devil's not going to let this work go forward without some kind of serious competitions. Now, I want us to look at the word duped for just a minute because I'm going to spend quite a bit of this sermon telling you about how the Protestant world has been duped. It won't have anything to do with that revival except that the principles upon which we evaluate will be the same. But to be duped is to be deceived, fooled, or tricked. And of course, nobody wants to be a dupe. Now, I'm beginning a journey that's really built on the premise of spiritual discernment. In 2007, 2008, right around that time period, one of the largest churches in America, the Willow Creek Church in Barrington, Illinois, began admitting some things. A shocking confession from Willow Creek Community Church leaders. What was the shocking confession? The shocking confession was that the model and the methods and the outcomes of one of America's most preeminent super churches, mega churches, was apparently not producing Christians. Willow Creek repents. When we go through the headlines, we find out that there's been more than one period of time in life when what looked like authority and expertise turned out to be something else. I'm going to read this to you, probably because it's a little hard for you to read. It says, if you're older than 40, the name Benjamin Spock is more than familiar. It was Spock that told an entire generation of parents to take it easy. Don't discipline your children. Allow them to express themselves. Discipline, he told us, would warp a child's fragile ego. Millions followed this guru of child development, and he remained unchallenged among child-rearing professionals. However, before his death, Dr. Spock made an amazing discovery. He was wrong. In fact, he said, we've reared a generation of brats. Parents aren't firm enough with their children for fear of losing their love or incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we professionals have imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best of intentions. We didn't realize it until it was too late how our know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents. Oops. Now, the problem with experimenting with generations is that there may be no recovery because something that takes 25 years to discover might not be easily recoverable. And what I'd like to suggest to you 
is that the very laid-back approach to parenting has been transitioned in the last generation or two to a very laid-back approach to church where people are customers, not members. They are consumers, not constituents. And they'll walk if they don't like what's going on because there's no commitment. It's all about what the church can give them. And what I want to show you this morning, and as I will dissect it over the next week, that we will either build our house, our personal and spiritual and familial houses on the rock of Christ's word, or we'll build it and it will look as good as the other, but it will be built on sand and it will collapse. What will be lost is not only our happiness on this earth, but our eternal happiness. Willow Creek's crash shows why denominations still matter. So congregationalism, and by the way, 30-some years ago when I was in school, and shortly thereafter, I myself made a trip over to the great ministerial mecca of Barrington, Illinois, to sit and listen and experience, you know, the amazing organization of this church. And by the way, the church growth movement has brought some good things to the church. It's caused us to at least be serious about the fact that the church is failing. For over 200 years, the churches in America grew. In 1965, we have the last year of church growth in America. Interestingly enough, we also have the cultural revolution that's starting right then and all the wealth of the, the baby boomers and the, uh, the hero generation of this age is now coming upon us. And we're in the age of expression and license and liberty. And the church finds itself in a crisis, so it makes a decision, and this is the decision. It decides to turn its model from that of a family with obligations and an accountability and privileges and belonging to the model of a business. And now the people it is trying to reach will be discoverable by marketing and won by programming and encouraged by pop psychology self-help type messaging. And this is a real problem because what I want you to know when you walk out of here this morning, I'm not going to be inductive, I'm going to be deductive. I'm not going to get you to figure it out. I'm going to tell you very clearly, the church is not a business. The church is the family of God. <laughs> Families don't exist without commitment. Married love is married love because people make promises. Children, raising children are, is not an act of convenience. It is a challenging, trying, sacrificing, rewarding, and blessed journey. But you don't sign up for all the pats on the back you get. They come somewhere down the road like when your children start raising their own children. Willow Creek's crash. Willow Creek investigation. Well, it gets worse. Not only does Willow Creek build on a bad model, not only does the family model not distinguish its structure with dynamics of proper accountability, but its leader falls on much harder times as he is obviously, it appears at this moment times in earth's history, guilty of pretty dark and heinous abuses of his ministerial position. And thus we have now a generation that has been wooed on the dynamics of religion as you want it. It's like Burger King, have it your way. Willow Creek's big adventure, and a lot of it is due to this man. Now, he is not one of the founding fathers of the church growth movement. We'd leave that to Donald McGavern, Peter Wagner, 
and some of these other individuals. But Barna, who still is a recognized name in Christian circles, is largely responsible for moving the frame or the, we call it paradigm, the structure of how we look at reaching the lost and church. And in this book, Marketing the Church, he will make a full court theological, intellectual, and academic press for why we need to look at the church as a business. Now you need to understand something. Businesses that are run well, according to Jim Collins in the book Good to Great, do run like families. But churches are families, and while they must incorporate best business practices, they work on a completely different structure, expectation, guidelines. Churches cannot turn their pew-sitting parishioners into consumers, for if they do, just like democracies, once they figure out that they have the power to direct the leader and change the institution, they can ruin themselves. So it's very important to know that while Barna has contributed an awful lot to statistical research in the church, he's also done a fair amount of setting the church in motion in a way where it self-destructs. So, when we look at marketing for the church, we need to understand that it's not, let's make a deal. Sorry for the old picture, but for those of you who grew up in this age, you could choose number one, number two, or number three. But when it comes to Jesus, he says, any man that would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Now take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. And I want to show you how central this dynamic of familial love is to the healthy and happy experience of any family, including a church family. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we have a very famous story of two harlots. Now, even harlots deserve some measure of justice. And what we're going to see is that not all harlots are of the same internal potential spiritual sensitivity or integrity or honesty because we have two very different harlots in this story. They're both harlots. They both have babies. One baby dies. One harlot is very crafty and sneaky. And she can remove the living baby without waking the living mother. And she can replace it with a dead baby. But the mother who realizes her baby is dead has so bonded and attached with that baby that she realizes that's not her baby. But everybody else doesn't know that. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Now I want you to notice who does all the talking. Then the one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. Important detail. It's going to boil down to this woman's character versus that woman's character. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, 
For the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman, the one who's done most of the talking, said, no, the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Now, I had an interesting discussion last night with one of my children about someone we know that will either have to be disfellowshipped or will have to drop their membership in the church. Because the church they're in is, appears to me, a fairly healthy church that's willing to hold its members accountable for the implosion and the destruction of a family. And um, my son said to me in the midst of this discussion, they said, so dad, what if this person goes somewhere else and wants to join another church? Could they just join? And I said, well, yes, they could by profession of faith. They could, they could go over and get a renewed membership experience with another church. I said, but you need to know something. When you've pastored for a little while and dealt with a lot of people, you get to the place where you can know when something's not quite right. You don't know what it is that's not quite right, but you do know that there's something not quite right. So let's just all be clear about this. If you live a disingenuous a, a life, a life lacking integrity and the fruits of the Spirit, you can't, like, keep all of that disingenuousness tucked inside your coat when you go to talk to somebody. It shows itself. Fruits are born, and they can't all be plucked off and hidden. And by the way, healthy churches who have to discipline a member or watch a member take their name off the books, which is their right to do, realize that there is a potential that the unhealthiness and lack of integrity that caused them to need the discipline might manifest itself in showing up somewhere else and trying to have their cake and eat it too. You see, the whole point of church discipline is to help a person wake up. The whole point of any kind of censure or disfellowshipping is to say you're on the road to self-destruction. Do you know it? And of course it should be done with courtesy. Well, the very same dynamic of, of knowing something's wrong but knowing not exactly what it is, Solomon understood. Solomon wasn't going to have the baby executed because of the disingenuineness and lack of integrity in the heart of one of these harlots. But he was going to help everybody else see, who couldn't see, that one of these women had an awful lot more integrity about her than the other. Yes, even harlots are not all cut from the same bowl of cloth. And so he says, all right, take the child and cut it in two and give half to that one, and give half to that one. And you know the story. I mean, you can almost feel the pathos of the real mother. Then the woman whose child was living spoke, for she was deeply stirred over her son. And she said, oh my Lord, Give the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, he's not going to be mine nor yours. Then the king said, give it to the one who did most of the talking. I want you to see the soldier holding the baby by its heels. 
and the sword in his hand, looking up at Solomon saying, what? And in a fraction of a second, Solomon can show by the family bond, by the love of the mother, that she would rather see the child in the arms of the wrong woman taking breaths and learning to walk and saying its first words, grieving every day of her life in that brothel or at least shared house than to see the life taken out of the son. And when a family operates on the principles of genuine love, there's life and truth and hope. The problem is, if you operate a family on self-interest, and if you survey to the flesh, as Dr. Rob Rice said in one of my focus groups recently, if you survey to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh, and like the book of Galatians says, you're going to reap destruction. Forty-some years ago, Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek, went around surveying. Why did he go around surveying? Because a man by the name of Donald McGavern had said that people will only join like groups of people. They called it the homogeneous unit. You know, when you homogenize something, you make it all the same. I want you to know God never intended that the church look exactly the same, all one gender, all one ethnicity, all one race, all one age. No, it's a family. It's the connection of the young and the old. It's the connection of the married and the single. It's a connection of all types of backgrounds and histories and experience, and they're all made one in Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, is that the new model is you go out and you do surveys. It's not so new, and it's, it's defunct, by the way. And you figure out whether or not they want to hear convicting sermons or not, or if they want coffee on the way out or not, or if they want rock and roll music or not. And you adapt the church and you reshape the identity of the family of God in the name of the mission of the church. The problem is nobody knew 40 years ago you would actually destroy the experience of conversion and transformation and grace to change and lift up and empower power to change a society and hold it by some form in the prophetic shadows of conscience. What we've found over the last 40 years is that we can make the church irrelevant if we want to by letting the lost dictate what it is they need to have to be found, to be saved, to be redeemed. It's ridiculous. It defies logic, but we did it in the name of anthropology and demographics and social studies. And where we are today is we have a fickless, non-committed, non-encouraged body of believers who seems to have no impact on the society at large and seems to have all the addictions and besetting sins that everybody has, whether they make a profession of Christianity or not. I'm here to tell you today, as the new head of the North American Division Evangelism Institute said, it is a defunct model. The problem is, is that there are many Adventist churches and many Adventist people with the mentalities that have been showered and flooding the religious landscape all around us. And it's time for us to recognize where they are and what they are because only the family model, only the knowledge that we are the sons and daughters of God with all its privileges and responsibilities, with all its encouragement and accountability is going to give us what we need to make it to the other side. 
You can't build your house on sand, which is what does the consumer want. You cannot have a church of consumers or a school of consumers. Every person that sits in this church today whose name's on a membership roll is a member of the family of God with all of its privileges, rights, and responsibilities. We only have constituents, we have no customers, and we have no consumers. We share with each other, caring for each other, and helping each other. Now, I'm going to run through a list of problems very quickly here. And I'm going to tell you before I do it, there is great, great hope for God's people. If they're willing to accept that they are the children of God, that the people in these pews are their brothers and sisters, if they're willing to accept the fact that sometimes in those family relationships it's going to work the way they want and sometimes it's not. If they're willing to make a commitment to be a part of this family, the odds are that the world can have an amazing invitation to a beautiful family experience, a witness of what a unified body can do, and that the people that are in that body can have health and happiness and the pursuit of all the things that God ordained should be theirs. If, however, we choose to embrace the mentalities that the customer is king, we can find ourselves with all the affirmation we want just by going somewhere else to hear somebody say, I'm okay, you're okay. Choosing to do that will assure that you have a wake-up moment like Solomon where you say, as we studied our lesson this morning, boy, I wish I would have remembered the Creator in the days of my youth. Regret is an ugly word, an ugly word. And of course, because we're Seventh-day Adventists preaching the three angels' messages, we know that we're living in the hour of judgment. And when Jesus stands up in his place in the heavenly sanctuary and he says, let him who's just be just still and let him who's unholy be unholy still, the day of grace will be forever ended. Forever ended. Does that place a family obligation on us as the remnant, the spiritual sons of Abraham? You bet it does. So I'm inviting you to build your house on the principles and the precepts of the words of Jesus Christ, the rock. And I'm going to show you how the Protestant church has single-handedly destroyed the Protestant Reformation with its own wrong ideas and customer-oriented missiological efforts. And if we have a care to stay out of the camp of the duped, we can. But if we choose to enjoy the benefits of a consumer religion, we shall find ourselves on the outside of the gates of the new Jerusalem. So let's just do a brief survey here of things we'll dig into just a little bit different. I want you to understand that the consumer method, the church growth model, the marketing model, the business model of the, of the Protestant church is an attack on some of the simplest truths of God in the name of what works. Mission, and success. It makes success a God and it defies the principles that prepare a person to live amongst the angels in heaven. I want you to know that the consumer mentality of Bible Christian Protestant methods is an attack on the dynamic of authority and leadership in the home and in the church and in the Word of God. It is the book we call the Bible that defines what the responsibilities are of pastors and teachers and of parents. Yes, the 
Protestant church has undermined the very inspiration of the scriptures in the name of fulfilling the Great Commission. And they've substituted data and science trumpeting their achievements like the Protestant world did for 30 years with Willow Creek Church. It is an affront to the omniscience of God as he expresses himself in the word. And I would say this also. If you make people customers with no obligations, they don't ever really have to grow. And I want you to remember that we just went through three years almost of what I'll call societal trauma, where it appeared that many didn't think the way the government and big business, including social media, was working, but untold thousands and millions were unwilling to speak up and say anything. How many times would my wallet get thicker if I had a dollar for everybody who either told me it was said to them or said it to me, you know, uh, I agree with you, but I, the essence of what they'd say is I, I gotta keep my head down. Listen, there's some merit to that for some moments. I'm not here to say there's none, but I am here to say this. If, if you tell people how special they are all the time without requiring them to grow up and be strong. They're going to be weak when they need to be strong. The Bible says God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. The very idea of turning you into a customer in the name of mission and letting you tell me what you need to be saved is an attack also on the gift and spirit of prophecy. The Bible says if the trumpet doesn't make a certain sound, who's going to prepare? And by the way, you need to know something. You can watch the spoofs and the satires on millennials who, who have been, they've been nurtured and raised in this environment. And there's some really funny ones out there if they weren't so not funny where people are sitting in churches and, and, and the pastor's preaching with conviction and, and they're getting nervous and fidgety and, and they don't want to be in those kind of messages. Friends, I want you to know something. The prophets have always spoken with authority. They have identified wrong. They have comforted and consoled. But this dynamic of thinking would come up to the precipice of no grace, the end of the announcement of the gospel, and there'd be no warning, no call to repentance... This dynamic of letting the consumer tell the Protestant world what it wants in a church service is an attack on the distinctiveness of Christ and his people. It's an attack on the separation of the church from the world. James would say pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to keep, visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now I'm going to digress just a little bit here. This church for its first 125 years, probably 140 years, believe there should be a distinct difference between the kind of music that you listen to. Because the spirit of the world knows how to link with the fallen nature of who you are. Doesn't matter whether it's country or rock and roll or rap or whatever it is. The devil's no dummy. He was the choir leader in heaven and he knows how to tinker with the music to identify with you. And by the way, the mantra of the Protestant church growth movement is identity to build a bridge. There's a book by Donald McGavern, the founding father of the Church Gold Movement called Bridge Builders. Bridges to God. The fact of the matter is, in a world that's full of spiritualism, which is sensory religion, there is no greater assault to your senses than the music you're listening to. And it's not only that we've started listening to the wrong music and sanctifying it with supposedly the right words, which often they aren't even that, 
but we've brought it into the church and we've made it the platform upon which we are supposedly worshiping God. And it is an abomination and an offense to God in the name of the structure of building up his kingdom. The problem is, as Socrates or Plato or one of them said, let me write the music of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. Because these things woven into the fabric of your mind will shape the way you live and think and do and it will either strengthen or weaken you. You sing our hymns and you put those tunes in your head and you're going to become strong because you are embracing Protestant theology that changed the world and it will change you. When it comes to this dynamic of, of surveying the world to find out what the church should be, it is an attack on the distinction of God's people. Paul would write, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What accord has Christ with Belial? Goes on to say, I will dwell among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's a war on the culture of holiness in the Bible. It's an attack upon logic and rationality. There's a pastor that I used to pastor with. He's no longer living. His name was Terry Nelson. He said, listen, what you win them with is what you win them to. I want everybody to think about that. What you win them with is what you win them to. When are you supposed to tell them, oh, by the way, Christians don't do those things, so we're going to have to have a little break in your religious journey here, and we're going to have to introduce this, this unique thing. Here it is. Are you ready? Ready, set, go. It's called the cross. Any man that would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. The church growth movement is an attack on the gospel. It's an affront to the Holy Spirit. It's an attack on the family of God. It's an attack on the homiletical obligations of the preachers who stand in the pulpits. It's an attack on the doctrine of salvation, which says, by the way, just so you know, the real working definition of, of marketing is mutually, ex mutually beneficial exchanges. I mean, this is all through the literature in Barna's book, a mutually beneficial exchange. I give you something in the community, you give me something. I give you what you want at church, you come and sit in my church. The hope is, is that sitting in my church will save you. It might, unless you predicated the whole beginning of the relationship on something that's wrong, like self-interest. Instead, God calls upon us to love them and minister to them. But the Bible doesn't say there's a mutually beneficial exchange between him and us. What was in it for God to leave the palaces above and come down here? The Bible says in Romans 5.10, we were enemies with God. And he came and reconciled us anyway. Yes, it's an attack upon the cross. Anyone who desires to come after me, let him deny himself. It's an attack upon the doctrine of justification. You can come to church just as you are. And I hope people do come as they are. But it's an attack upon the gospel. They should expect to let the Holy Spirit do its convicting voice through the law of God to show you the need of the cross and the unfitness of your soul to appear in the presence of a holy God. It's an attack upon the worship of God. Remember, as a group, we're called to fear God and worship Him. Our message at the end is a message not only about worship, but an experience in worship. So we should have the most spirit-filled singers and the most beautiful and holy music. And we should have actual preaching that is in the order of the millennia of the prophets and the priests who broke the bread of God and spoke as Jesus did with authority and as the apostles did. Yes, you remember that in Acts 4.13 when they saw that they were unlearned men. 
But they weren't afraid and they spoke with authority. They said, they've been with Jesus. I want to tell you the church growth movement is an attack upon the unity of the church because the church growth movement breaks it down. Oh yes, Rick Warren, Saddleback Church out there in California. The people who come to church there, they want their preacher to wear a Hawaiian shirt with no tie. That's what he'll wear. Whatever happened to bringing God our best? Whatever happened to the idea? Bill Hybels, don't collect an offering. That could make somebody feel uncomfortable. You just put it in out there if you want. Whatever happened with not appearing before the king, the great God of the universe, without a gift? Whatever happened to the simple Bible teachings that actually produce beautiful children of God? It's an attack upon the youth and the seniors because these same anthropological and demographic studies will tell us that the old people can't understand the young people and the young people don't want to hear from the old people. But that's not how a family works. It's an attack upon the incarnation of God, the idea that there is some kind of mutually benefit exchange. All the infiniteness of God will never be equaled to in the devotion of man. There was nothing we even had to offer except pain and suffering. The whole church growth movement is a, a revelation of the ignorance of God's people starting clearly seen in the 80s and 90s. It's an attack upon grace. They talk about grace ad infinitum, ad nauseum. But the people, unfortunately, the Pew statistics show that the people aren't being changed by what's going on in Protestant churches. So you're addicted to pornography without a confession of Christ. You're addicted to Christ, addicted to pornography with a profession of Christ. Yes, if all the pastors can become marketing gurus, then the people in the pews don't have to pray and intercessory plead for their neighbors and, and witness so much. It's an attack upon the doctrine of the great controversy. I want to remind you what Jesus said. Don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a what? I want to tell you, friends, this society we're in is like upside down in the toilet. And if ever there was a day when some righteous people ought to stand up and say, you're a Kelly, you don't do that. Or you're a Seventh-day Adventist and we don't do that. If there was ever a day when somebody should say, right is not wrong and wrong is not right, it's today. And if we think we're going to keep peace, we need to just go back to one of the presidents who said, don't think you're going to make any progress in a dead calm. The boat will have to rock. It rocked in the days of Jesus. It rocked in the days of the apostles. And it's going to rock again, but not with rock star popularity for celebrity pastors or parents or teachers or church growth gurus. It's an attack on honesty, integrity, and accountability. If I can't even tell you the truth about how you're supposed to worship and what God expects for you and how you live, we're in big, big trouble. Where are we? We're on the cusp of something significant. You know, they've got the doomsday clock as close to midnight as they've ever had it. You know that? We've got nuclear saber rattling going on. Do you know this? Are you reading the news at all? We're living in an age where it appears that our climate is unraveling, whether you believe it's attributable by man's actions or not, it's happening. Whether we're in a soft recession or the beginning of a hard one, nobody knows. But what's worse than that? You can't get people to stay married or come to work or make sure their kids get to school. We're living in an age of colossal dysfunction because nobody's expected anything of anything. But I need you to know something. 
When I held that first boy in my hands 33 years ago, and I went from being a big boy myself, married for five years, to becoming a man by becoming a dad, something significant happened up here. I can still see the picture of me in Memorial Hospital in South Bend. I was in the seminary when Nathan was born. And I can still see myself sitting there in that room holding my firstborn son. I'm 26 years old and something's changed. It didn't matter to me from that point forward. I can remember the day I talked to my Pathfinder leaders and I said, I wanted to know about what his arrangements were going to be as he's a young pathfinder going on night. Who's going to be in his tent? How's it going to be observed? I wanted to know. I can remember when he went into the first grade. I've actually, his first grade teachers died during the pandemic and they've actually asked me to hold the, uh, the graveside over the internet. That'll be kind of interesting. But I felt very comfortable putting him in her room. She was an older woman a tried and true Seventh-day Adventist educator who had character and commitment and compassion and knew a little something about, a lot something about God and kids and parents. I can remember when they were in the academy and sometimes they didn't like what I was saying. And I told them, look, it's not my job to be your friend. It's my job to get you to a healthy adulthood. I'm enjoying being their friend now. I can remember those years when they said, you're the only one that's doing this. Nobody else is doing it. And I said, I don't care. But I need you to know something. If you would have come into my home and told me, well, let's run this like a business. Let's survey the kids. Let's do a survey. Let's find out what they want. You need to know it still remains the same. At the Kelly house, nothing's for sale. There, isn't, there ain't no amount of money that would cause me to deviate or change the principles upon which I've lived my life and raised my kids and there ain't nothing that's free. It's all cost an awful lot. Instead of somehow my kids thinking somehow they're negatively impacted by the mistakes I made, they are God-ordained, duty-bound, obligated to honor me through the rest of my life and to be arrows in my hands and do what I raised them to do. My family could never have succeeded if I would run it like a business and I would have needed to be somebody's, you know, I, I had to sit through once. I mean, it was, it was very difficult. I can remember being 40 some years, I had to sit through. I had to sit through more than one, unfortunately, church growth seminars put on by my conference, which was not this conference back then. One of them, I, I, was, I was told how to, I, I was told so many things. Uh, some of them were okay things like the pastor was preaching a sermon on, on tasting and seeing what the Lord was, that the Lord was good and he had somebody go pop popcorn in front of the intake on the, on the heating system. I, I don't have a problem with that, okay? So it smells like popcorn in here. It's an illustration. But so many of the other things that he said would only have created spiritual adolescence and I said that in the presence of one of the older men in the conference office and they affirmed it, and I had to wonder why we were all being subjugated to listening to this. And then I had another peer, that peer still pastoring, and they should hear me say this, I hold no angst against you, but it was wrong then and it's still wrong, as he taught us all to create raving fans. 
It's the pastor's job to create raving fans. And the idea would be you'd go out and talk about how wonderful the church is and how wonderful the pastor is. I knew that was garbage because raising my family, I didn't always have fans. I sometimes had foes. They shared my home. They shared my food. They shared my name. It's only the family of God that can do God's work and will see God's face and will hear the words, well done, faithful servant. I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got commitments, so do you. If I don't do my job, there's blood on my hands. If the trumpet doesn't make a certain sound, you won't know whether to retreat or advance, charge, or move to the side. We're living in a dangerous age, and we've all been schooled that if you don't like what you get here, you can go somewhere else and get something different. And you can. The problem is, Jesus said, narrow is the way and straight is the road that leads to eternal life, and few there are who find it. So I just need to tell you before I start this week of prayer, when I came to this district, I thought to myself, how is this going to work? How is this going to work? And I need to confess my unbelief because I had already been over the road of having to do the real work of being a spiritual father to a church of about 450 people, and I knew sometimes people said, hmm, I'm not living under this, I'm leaving. And I thought to myself, how is this going to work with 12, 15, 18 other churches within three minutes of this church? Well, I'll tell you how it works. <laughs> Belonging to the family of God with all of its rights, privileges, and responsibilities is way better than not self-respecting yourself and having genuine spirit-filled assurance because you've built your house on the rock. And by God's grace, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for the genuine article, but it's going to require transformation of purpose, spirit-filled groups, God-blessed messaging methods and ministry, but it will not work on a customer basis. The Protestant world has itself destroyed the Protestant Reformation. And there are places and there are people listening to me right now who have consumer mentalities and have made very tepid, nominal, and by the way, Ellen White says nominal religion is the thing to be greatly dreaded. It will not work. It does not work. It has not worked. And it won't work for us. By God's grace, we can build on the rock. We can understand our obligations. We can understand our methods. And we can bank on the Holy Spirit's administration and power to make it live and to win. When will the false arrival of the false revival appear? I don't know. But I know this. I'm praying for wisdom. I'm reading the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And with that extra light, I'm banking to be able to see through the deepening darkness. May God help us, friends. We're on the beginning of a journey. They always used to tell us the world isn't going to end in World War III. Well, you know what? It might not end in World War III. It's not going to. But that doesn't mean there isn't going to be one. Are you listening to me? Just read the news. If ever there was a time to have something that can stand up against the storms of life, it is now. So I'm inviting everybody at the beginning of this week of prayer to not only rededicate their heart to Christ, 
but to be open to whatever reconfiguration he would lay upon you to be who he's called you to be. May the Lord help us to build on the rock, the living rock, the rock of our salvation so with Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storms. Oh yes, troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear now are at stake. Humble your heart to God. This is our moment. Friends, I'm inviting you to rededicate your life to Christ. Open your heart in spirit and receptivity to the truth. And make a decision, whatever needs to change. I'm giving Jesus a chance to be the architect of my salvation and the divine engineer of how I live in my life and this church. May God help us. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.